Welcome to Four Quarter Lives, a podcast exploring the profound impact of longer, healthier, and more engaged lives, not only for ourselves and our couples, but also for companies and countries. Asia is on an accelerated journey of so many things. We've long watched its extraordinary economic growth. Now we're seeing it accelerating in other areas that have taken far longer in the West, namely demographics, aging populations, and plummeting fertility levels. The speed at which this region is shifting, shrinking, and reshaping is astonishing. Luckily, we have some expert help to understand some truly shocking headlines and dig beneath them. I'm Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, and on this week's Four Quarter Lives, I talk with Philip O'Keefe. After a career with the World Bank, Philip is director of the Aging Asia Research Hub at SEPAR, a consortium of universities working on aging in a uniquely interdisciplinary way. This perspective shines through in his explanation of what's going on with babies, aging, and men across Asia. Welcome, Pip, if I may. Thank you, Aviva. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to dive right in and start talking about Japan. Japan, we've heard for a long time, is the oldest country in the world, but things are moving fast. And China made headlines this year by shrinking demographically for the first time. But shouldn't we have known this was coming? Yes, well, Japan still takes the cake as the oldest country, so it hasn't lost that title yet. But China, it was last year, that was shrunk by almost a million people. And of course, that shrinkage will accelerate. We should have known it was coming for a variety of reasons. But the first is, you know, if you have a country which has low fertility for a long time, virtually or very little immigration, rapid aging, all those things inevitably lead to a shrinking population at a certain point. The other clue to all this was that a decade or more ago, the working age population in China, the share of working age population started shrinking more than a decade ago now. So that's always generally a precursor. The to working the, age yeah. population, I'm just always concerned about numbers and definitions. That's 15 to 64. 15 to 64 would yeah. be the okay. standard kind of one. Of course, whether that's how we're good gonna, a definition that is anymore, that's a question, but that's the standard kind of ILO one. Yeah, so that began shrinking more than a decade ago. So that's normally a precursor to these things. If you look ahead, China by 2050 will have almost exactly Japan's demographics today. What Japan has today by way of population structure, elderly population, working age, etc., China will have almost exactly that by 2050. So 25 years time or so. Wow. so. We're going to come back to China and why that is. But let's move on to the other big headlines. India is set to become the most populous country in the world, overtaking China this year, 2023. Well, they claim that it happened in April. I mean, how (laughs) precise one can be. Oh, I like it. But it's probably, as we speak, already the largest country in the world. So that's quite momentous, even though it's a very minor gap at this point. But the direction is clearly that that gap will grow as China shrinks and India continues to grow for a while yet. The real story behind that is more about fertility rates, I guess, than about population. Tell us about what's happening. Exactly. The interesting thing is probably, I mean, that's a good headline, of course, and captures a lot of attention naturally. But the more interesting story, I think, in India over the coming years is that its fertility rate has also fallen really sharply. So as of 2020, they, for the first time, fell below replacement rate, that is below 2.1 children per woman. And that's really, again, momentous that the now largest country in the world has also fallen below 
replacement rate of population. And as recently as 1990. Exactly. Much more southern than other countries have. Yeah. And this is true across Asia. This really rapid drop in fertility is really characteristic across East and good parts of South Asia too. So as recently as 1990, women in India were having four kids on average. 30 years later, they're having around two. And in urban areas, the average is 1.6. So as the country urbanizes, that trend's only going to continue. And the fertility rate, you would strongly expect to keep falling in India as well. Okay, so we're going to dig into what you've been saying is called baby strikes and what I call (laughs) women voting with their wombs in a moment. But we'll come to our third headline, which is about South Korea, which is now rather famous for having the lowest fertility rate in the world. Aside, you mentioned from the Vatican, which I thought was a good point. What is the fertility rate in South Korea and why does this matter? And this reality that's spreading across not just Asia, but the whole world. Korea, it's so the average, what they call total fertility rate, which is the number of children a woman can be expected to have in a lifetime. Which we sometimes read as TFR, if people are academic papers. Exactly is 0.78 in the most recent years. So less than four-fifths of a baby, whichever four-fifths you want to have. That is the lowest in the world. Yeah, exactly. Other than the Vatican, which I double-checked and is officially zero for its birth rate. I assume there's an unofficial birth rate, but its official rate (laughs) is zero. But, you know, Korea is an extreme case and fell very quickly, is very, very low, etc. But the region is a low fertility region. Singapore's 1.1, Thailand's 1.3, China's below 1.2 now. So it's a pretty low fertility neighborhood. But look, this trend, I think East Asia is particularly striking, both the pace of this decline and the extent to which it's gone, how low it's gone. The Koreans had a parliamentary committee about 10 years ago that estimated the last Korean would be born in 2300 or something. Oh my God. Yeah. End of world, yeah. This is a new end of history, right? A different kind of apocalyptic scenario. This region is particularly pronounced, but that pattern of declining fertility you see in the whole world. So if you look at global fertility rate, in this decade, the world will reach replacement rate. And that's, again, another momentous turning point kind of in human history. Probably in the next few years, probably by about 2026, the world will reach replacement rate. You mean we'll fall down to replacement ratio, that we are only just replacing those who die? Exactly, exactly. So it'll hit 2.1, which is considered replacement rate, in about three or four years' time, basically. Now, parts of the world, Africa most notably, is still well above that. They're at 4.6 or something. But even there, it's come down pretty steadily, and I'm sure we'll continue to do so. It's almost like an ironclad law of development that fertility rates come down as countries get richer and time goes on. But the fact that the world is reaching replacement rate this decade, I find really quite extraordinary. Mind-blowing. Look at Pretty human low. history, the big sweep of history. That is a major tipping point. We will never have seen that before in human history. There's possibly, you know, with plagues and things, you know, the Black Death or things like that, where you had mortality rates being extremely high. But if you just look at birth rates, I think probably that's right. Extraordinary, really. So here's the world from Asia. Let me just repeat your three headlines that China is 
going to be shrinking demographically as of 22. India is set to pass it and become the most populous country in the world. And South Korea is the leader, but certainly not alone in plummeting down to the lowest fertility rates we've ever seen. And the whole world will be going to replacement ratio over the foreseeable future. Pip, give me an idea of what's your background? How did you get interested in all this? And what is the Aging Asia Research Hub? And what is SEPAR? Well, it's a kind of nerdy area in a way to get interested. It's pretty dramatic headline. It's dramatic when you put it in these terms, but I'm not a demographer. I should say that first. I'm an economist by training and I worked for almost three decades at the World Bank in the social protection and jobs area. So I worked a lot on social security systems, labor markets, et cetera. And as you work in regions like Eastern Europe, Central Asia, East Asia, et cetera, you inevitably encounter this stuff. So I got into it more and more and led a kind of regional flagship on aging in East Asia and got more interested. When I retired from the bank a couple of years ago, CEPAR is Center of Excellence for Population Aging Research, and it's a consortium of the top universities in Australia. So New South Wales, Sydney, Melbourne, ANU, National University, and Curtin in Western Australia. And it's multidisciplinary, economists, demographers, health folks, sociologists, anthropologists, really an interesting mix of people who look at ageing. A lot of the focus is on Australia, but this Ageing Asia hub is focused very much on the developing countries of East and Southeast Asia primarily, and a bit of South Asia. And I'm curious, have other regions done a similar consortium of their universities and thought leaders in the ageing space? I'm certainly aware of lots of aging centers, whether they be a lot of them are in economics, some of them are in demography, et cetera. And of course, they have networks in the usual way of universities, but I'm not aware where the center itself is quite so multi-institutional yeah. as CEPA. I think that is pretty unusual, actually. That sounds like and, a measure of excellence itself. It's a great thing. And the multidisciplinarity of it also is quite, I think, more than most. You know, often you'll get a centre of demographers with a few economists or primarily economists. I think the mix and the even balance of the mix in CPAR is quite unusual. Maybe not unique, but unusual. That's fascinating. And a perfect place now to dig a little bit behind your rather shocking headlines. I wanted to get into this whole fertility rate, TFR, all these kind of specialist things <laughs> that I think are so interesting to me from a gender perspective as well. But Let's start with China's one-child policy. Everybody points to that as the explanation of China's low fertility and shrinking population. But I was really interested to hear you say that you weren't pointing fingers at that. You were saying that it started long ago and probably would have happened no matter what the policy was. Can you explain that a bit? That's probably oversimplifying on my part. But if you look at China, firstly, look at any country and particularly any developing country. As they get richer, fertility rates decline, as I said before, you know, it's almost an ironclad rule of development. And as women get more educated. I mean, women get more educated. The pace at which China got rich and the pace at which educational attainment improved for women in particular was phenomenal in China. So it was a kind of on steroids version of development. And the fertility decline that you see with development, you would have expected to see that on steroids too. Let's put yeah. it that way. But that said, even if you look, and I'm by no means saying the one-child policy didn't play a role, but 
if you look at where China was in 1970, the average woman was having about six kids. By 1980, which is when the one-child policy started in effect, they were having 2.7. So most of the action actually happened during the 70s, or the sharpest decline in birth rates happened in the 70s. Now, that didn't just happen by itself. There was aggressive birth control campaigns, including abortion and the like. So it wasn't that there wasn't a very strong family planning policy being put in place. It just wasn't as strict and as rigid as the one-child policy became. But it was also a period, I guess, the 70s of enormous uncertainty, cultural revolution, political change, etc. And the other thing you see with all countries in history is war, conflict, uncertainty of different forms, economic crises, etc. People, they don't go crazy having babies in those times. <laughs> Birth rates typically decline. They typically bounce back also, but that would be another thing I think that was happening in China in the 70s as well as the policy side of things. And certainly the one child continued that effort on the family planning side and certainly contributed to bringing it down further. But just to say that when it's singularly attributed to the one child, I think that's a bit simplistic. I'm curious to you. I mean, it sounds like, which I totally understand, nightmare dystopian scenarios create low birth rates. We can understand automatically why. But I had understood that the greatest birth rate declines globally had actually accelerated from 2000 on when the world was doing somewhat better than it has. What's behind this yeah. fall in birth? Certainly war and bad news does it. They're temporary kind of things, yeah. typically. I think in the long sweep of things, definitely women's education easily. Income levels, there's a pretty tight correlation between country income levels and fertility rates. I mean, all these things, of course, tend to line up together higher education for women, higher income levels for countries, et cetera. So I think some of the reasons why birth rates have fallen, it goes from a range of things that are a positive story, you know, more educated women, richer countries, the fact that birth control is available to more women and they actually for the first time in many countries have some say in their fertility decisions. So they're not just kind of baby mules or whatever. So I think they're all positive things. Some of the things in East Asia, this is particularly pronounced, are more things that apply to the couple or the household, I would say. So the cost of raising children, obviously. So if you look, say, in East Asia, there was a nice study done by, they're called the Yuwa Population Research Think Tank in China, which has some very good demographers and economists from Peking University and other places. They looked at the cost of raising a kid to the age of 18 as a multiple of per capita income. And in Korea, that was 7.8 times per capita GDP. In China, it was 6.9 times. In the US, it was just over four. In Germany, it was three and a half. Wow. So the relative cost of raising kids in East Asia is particularly high for a variety of reasons, some of which are things like the amount of money spent on tutoring of kids and things <laughs> like that. You know, there are some specific factors to the region, but overall, so it's interesting that in decades where really women have been flooding into the labor force and working all over the world, including very suddenly, I think also in some countries in Asia, I've always kind of thought about it as women voting with their wombs until the systems adapt to design for the women and couples that have evolved 
women are kind of not making babies because not only don't they have the money, although they're now dual income couples, but the systems, the workplace, the couples, the gender roles really haven't kept up with the pace of change. Would you agree with any of that? I would certainly agree with that in East Asia, and I think it's not confined to East and Southeast Asia. But if you look at what Asia, it's kind of quite unprecedented, the pace at which these countries have grown. You know, the Asian tigers first, and now more recently China, Vietnam, Indonesia, and others. And you see it even not just in family relations, but in institutional features of these countries too. It's very difficult to keep up with that pace of growth and change and all the things that come with it, urbanization, internal migration, changing co-residence patterns in households, et cetera. So I definitely think gender relations and expectations are big drivers here also. So if you look at East Asia in particular, first thing to look at is marriage rates because to have a baby outside wedlock is very, very unusual. We're not talking about Netherlands or somewhere where, you know, more than half of kids are outside of formal marriage. So basically, marriage rates have fallen quite steeply in all these places. So that's the first kind of sign of women voting with their wombs or their feet or whatever you want to call it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Even where they do marry, marriage has been significantly delayed. Now, that's true across a lot of the developed world, but I think it's more pronounced, that delay even amongst those who marry. And you see some interesting things. I mean, the nice part of development is you have some market signals that no longer exist in rich countries. So bride price, for example. Bride price in rural China has gone up quite sharply in recent years for a variety of reasons. If you were wanting to get married, part of it is the legacy of the one-child policy having had a lot of missing girls. And that's something we didn't touch on before, but the composition of that lower population was obviously much more male biased. Yeah. You see it in those kind of things, but also if you look at, say, numbers on the women's bearing of multiple loads, you know, work and non-work or non-market, rather, work. OECD have looked at this. And if you look at total work across men and women, market and non-market, it's relatively similar, the aggregate amount of work, but the men are doing more market work, the women, you know, of course, more non-market work. But if you look at the ratios, so Somewhere like India, the ratio of Indian women's non-market work to men's is six to one. Can you just clarify those terms for our listeners? So things like household chores, fetching wood, fetching water. And a lot of it also comes around to things like that, that women's jobs in the division of labor are jobs that often take a lot of time to go and fetch water from a, a well or to fetch wood for cooking But that kind of ratio, six to one, six hours every day of non-market work to one for the man, in the OECD, for example, that's five to two overall. You know, it's still pronounced even in richer countries. But if you look at the Nordics, those numbers are much closer together. But if you look at Korea, Japan, their multiples are about four to one and that kind of thing. So even if you look at just numbers on time use, it shows up that the burden of non-market work on women is substantially higher in these countries than it is in countries of similar income levels. At the same time, countries like China, women's labor force participation is quite high. Japan and Korea is a different story because it's quite high till they have a baby, then it drops off 
quite significantly. It comes back a bit, maybe in their 40s, but it drops off. All these things, I think there is such a mix of things about the declining birth rate, some of which are really positive stories for women, higher education, more empowerment, choice, that kind of thing, and some of which are clearly, as you say, this kind of lag where cultural and social attitudes and practices just can't keep up with the pace of change of the economy. Despite the countries trying to do stuff, Abe and Singapore, and all these countries have tried to put in packages to change this situation, but society doesn't change as quickly as policy can change. Well, I often find that policymakers are saying, and the media echoes that, you know, they have tried everything to encourage fertility, but my sense is they don't quite get what it is that women are waiting for in order to have more babies. And it's a much more general. If you research what couples want, both men and women around the world, they would like more babies. Most couples seem to vote that they want too. But it sounds from everything that you're saying that babies are really becoming a luxury item. There aren't very many people that are going to be able to afford this little delight. And a lot of the talk is about women. And I just want to close on this fertility chapter. What about men? I mean, what do they think? What's the role of men? You've just said, you know, this incredible difference in terms of pay and working hours and market labor rates. What do they think about it? Is there any analysis of what men culturally are thinking? Would they like to change? Are they horrified by this? Are they having the same kind of backlash, right wing, put women back in the home reactions that we see in some places? What's the feeling or the discussion? Oh, you know, I can't speak for firstly such a diverse group of men across these countries. But well, firstly, I think it's still sinking in the recognition of the issue, the scale of the issue at a societal level. I think men are slow to change. Men also want more babies, as you said. So in China, for example, when they do surveys, couples want about 1.7 babies and they're having less than 1.2. So I think the trade-offs involved with that, I think the men still work on the assumption that the care and other things or the career sacrifices that might be needed and whatever will sit with the woman. But that said, I think it's an interesting mix of a story. If you look at China, for example, at the moment, the government is throwing money at people to have babies. Everything from baby bonuses to subsidized childcare, more parental leave, all these tax treatment, that kind of thing, all the many things that you would probably, some of which not, but most of which would be sensible interventions, you would think. But people are not responding so far to that. It does make you wonder whether, I just don't think the message is probably being fully absorbed yet by men in these societies, and that's slow to change. Men, workplaces, policies, yeah. We'll see how far this has to go down before we start adapting to actually really pushing it back up. Yeah. Which brings me to my last set of questions on what are the solutions to demographic decline, if there are any? And first, does it matter? Is Japan a cautionary tale or a model? What are we pulling out of this first country to age? I think it's certainly a sign of what I think the future will look like for many countries, certainly in Asia, in terms of their demographic structure and the like. So I think in that sense, it's very important to look at. It's a real mix, I think, of whether it's cautionary. I think it certainly has implications. So if you look, say, at a big country like China, 
it's clearly going to have less demand for resources over time. They won't need to build so many houses. They won't need so much steel, so much iron ore. So countries like my own, Australia or Brazil or Canada, who export all these things to them will notice that big time, I think. But the second thing is, and perhaps a more structural thing, is that these countries, the developing countries anyway, their model was abundant, cheap labor that drove a lot of their growth transition and moving people from rural to urban areas into the manufacturing jobs often in China where they could use their cheap labor productively. Now, clearly, the minute labor starts shrinking, the price of labor goes up, your comparative advantage shifts and you need to be much more capital intensive. You know, you'll get acceleration of robotics and things like that. You already see that in China. So I think there'll be real structural shifts in these countries where they'll have to shift their developmental model and their growth model. And they probably would have done some of that naturally anyway, but that will probably be accelerated by the choices they make. So I think it does matter. It'll affect things like trade patterns, investment patterns, all that kind of thing. On the positive side, it'll also create new markets in the silver economy. So all these Asian older tourists, for example, wanting to come to Australia, maybe they'll replace some of the loss from the natural resources or (laughs) for financial services products or for a whole host of things. And of course, the healthcare sector, but even well beyond the healthcare sector. So I think it will have quite a big impact. How much of an impact, I think, depends enormously on policy changes, behavioral change in society, whether it's around working lives or fiscal policy and things like that. So The demographics are pretty much locked in, give or take a little, but the impact they'll have, I think that combination of policy and demographics is really important. So if you look at, say, Asia in the 70s and 80s had very similar demographics to Latin America, 70s, 80s, 90s, but Latin America kind of economically stagnated, repeat crises, et cetera, didn't really capitalize on its demographic dividend, whereas Asia did. And a lot of that was policy, investing in education, open markets. Now, I know the Washington consensus is poo-pooed these days, but some elements of that were very successful for Asia, which Latin America didn't do. So the combinations at kind of macro and sectoral level are pretty important, I think. I'm curious Um, about the financial measures from places like the World Bank, where you've spent so much time, is we're looking at national GDP rates going down with these aging, shrinking populations. But Hasn't Japan's GDP per capita continued to rise over this period? That's the thing. You would expect growth rates to come down with aging, other things equal. And then the question is, do other things stay equal or do things change? Darren Asimoglu, who you may know from MIT, a very eminent economist, he and some colleagues looked at this across a number of OECD countries and they said, well, do we actually observe this slowdown in growth in practice? They didn't think that you do empirically. And their explanation of that was that countries substitute between labor and capital and capital makes each worker more productive. They invest more in human capital as well. So the worker has more skills and knowledge to start with and that kind of thing. So these kind of things, the growth impacts, if you do nothing and only the demographics change, those growth impacts will be quite pronounced negatively, you know, quite pronounced. But if you shift and you adapt, the estimates for most countries suggest a slowing growth rate for sure in aging countries, but it doesn't need to be dramatic and it can be less dramatic with the right policy mix. 
Fantastic. So let's maybe just round off our fertility conversations with what are the right policy measures? What would you like to see if we do push on the demographic lever and at least maintain replacement ratios, if that even is a goal? What might work? You were talking about baby bonuses being thrown around. That doesn't seem to deliver. What do we need? Well, firstly, I think the goal of getting back to replacement rate in countries, most OECD countries and increasingly a number of developing countries, I don't suspect that's a realistic goal. If you can sit it or get to stabilize it, you know, 1.8 or something like that, you're probably doing well, I would say, in the modern richer economies. I'm no, noting I mean, 1.8 as the magic number. Let's, well, let's, that's, hang it you know, out. I, let's hang it out there as an image of potential success. On the flip side, I have a colleague, John Piggott, who says the magic of 1.4, where if you have a birth rate of 1.4, the size of the cohort halves every second generation. So that's his magic number on the downside. Which leaves you time to adjust, as you were saying, is that? The magic? Well, he's just saying magically it'll go down. You know, <laughs> oh, there's see. nothing you can do about it. If it's sustained, it will be too low and it won't give you much time to adjust. These adjustments, the OECD countries took a long time. When yeah. you talk about moving from aging to aged societies, and that's the share of elderly, the states took 70 years to do that. France took over 110 years. All these countries we're talking about took somewhere between 20 and 25 years. So you can imagine. That pace of change, even if you're not growing economically with that kind of change and the social change that goes with that, think about how long it takes to turn around a pension system because you've got people already in that system when they're 20 or something like that, or a healthcare system. We all know from our own countries, you can't turn a healthcare system on a dime either. So, you know, 20 years in the scheme of those kind of reforms is just no time at all. Anyway, on the fertility stuff, coming back to that, Baby bonuses, I would say, a definite no. They're a nice way of feeling like you're doing something, but they do very, very little to change people's fertility behavior. Things like parental leave, for sure. If you look at kind of analysis on richer countries, that does seem to have an effect. And ideally shared parental leave with the males having that option also. But you need to take it. And in (laughs) Japan, where they tried to expand this, I think 5% of men or something or fewer actually take it because of the cultural norms and the norms in the workplace and the like. So it's no use introducing parental leave if nobody takes it. Flexible work arrangements, I think, are really important. They're important in many ways. They typically get looked at in the context of women, but they're equally, if not more important for older workers who may want to, rather than have a cliff of retirement, have a glide into retirement and kind of scale down their scale of work, but need kind of flexible labor regulation often to be able to do that. Subsidized childcare, free schooling, all those things, absolutely. A lot of countries say, well, we've done this, we've done that. The thing is, it's rarely, I mean, my own country, Australia, they're forever talking about we're putting more into childcare this year, more into childcare. But when you look at the scale of the issue and the scale of the spending, I think even though there's this recognition, there's not this willingness to shift the balance of public spending. And part of that is because certain public spending things are locked in. The pensions bill is very difficult to adjust or the healthcare bill is very difficult to adjust. But I mean, the Nordics, I think, are probably the ones who've put in the widest and the best funded mix of 
what we would consider fertility positive policies. And surprise, surprise, they have the highest fertility in the OECD. It's not rocket science, but it's also a case of not setting expectations too high. Other things, I think tax treatment is a very important one. So East Asian countries, Japan is a good example, penalized women returning to work for the couple. The threshold of income that the woman could earn before there were penalties in the tax system was really low. So the incentive to return to work was very low. Similarly, in the pension system, she was able to get a pension through her husband. So again, the incentive for her to save and contribute to a pension system. So neutral tax treatment of second earners is extremely important. And I think East Asia has not been good at that. And then a final one, which is the big elephant in the room and the political one is immigration. That's the other feature of these East Asian countries, Japan, Korea, China, very, very little inward immigration. Contrast them to Singapore, which also has an extremely low birth rate, but has quite high, both high-skilled and low-skilled immigration to the country. That maintains a vibrancy in that economy that I think the others will struggle to do without that. Now, again, it's not that that's unrecognized. Abe tried to increase it. The Koreans have tried to increase immigration. The Chinese, not so much at this point. Immigration is one of the huge differences between the Australias and the Americas in terms of their sustained economic vibrancy compared to some of the East Asian countries. That'll take a little bit more work. Yeah, we all know the politics of immigration is always charged. Yeah, I mean, let's just conclude. It's so interesting to me how the Nordics are always held up as kind of the role model in so many dimensions of policy work. Is Singapore the Asian version of the Nordic model? Are they designing better for age and longevity? In just a sentence to wrap up, is there some lessons we can take from their approach? And why do people just copy what the Nordics have done? Well, I think one part of copying what the Nordics have done that are you willing to tax at that level? And most of these countries, this is a very low tax region, low public revenue region. Some of these countries would have to triple public revenues to get anywhere near the Nordic levels of revenue. So you can only throw the money you have at a problem kind of thing. So that's one thing. And I don't think there's the willingness to tax that high. So even Singapore, which I think has a mix of really interesting, sensible policies to support both productive aging, healthy aging, aged care, that kind of thing. There's still going to remain a much bigger role for the family, for communities and the like, I think, even into the future than one observes in the Nordic countries where the role of the state is much bigger and much more dominant. You know, we have 50% of GDP revenues versus 18 or thereabouts kind of thing. So, I think all of these countries do have interesting experiences. Japan, Korea, Singapore have all tried interesting and sensible things in the area of aging, but I think it's too early to say how impactful they will be. And the other big question is how much can policy drive these and how much will it just need to be the fundamentals of the market? If employers are finding they can't hire people and they need to start hiring older people, That's ultimately what will drive this. And of course, it can be nudged along by tax incentives or other things. But ultimately, I think the fundamentals of the market and the structure of the labor force will drive a lot of this. Whether they can also drive the gender dimensions of it, I'm (laughs) less optimistic. Yeah, We'll do our best. We'll be working on that. Pip, I want to thank you for an absolutely fantastic, fascinating conversation. I'm taking away 
not just the headlines that China is now shrinking the most demographically, that India is the biggest of them all and South Korea is the lowest fertility, but also this extraordinary acceleration of aging itself, that it's 20 to 25 year drop in Asia compared to France's 110 years. I hadn't heard anything quite that graphic. I'm going off with those numbers in my head, but I really want to thank you for a fascinating whirlwind tour of Asia. Thanks for being with me. Oh, no, pleasure. Really enjoyed the talk. Thanks, Aviva. To many more. We'll keep track. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye. For more thinking about the impact of our four-quarter lives, you can read my column at Forbes and subscribe to my Elderberries newsletter on Substack. Let's design lives that aren't just longer, but better.